Hello and welcome to the latest CRU Sustainability Podcast with me, Charlie Durant, your host. For the next 15 to 20 minutes, we'll be providing insight on one of the big sustainability questions of the day. Now, with the built environment taking centre stage at COP, we thought it'd be a good idea to use this episode to delve into the metals recycling industry, which is an often poorly understood aspect of our sector. So joining me today, I have Neil Hawkes, who has been studying the lead market for multiple decades, and Owen Dinsmore, who will shine some light on what is happening in the world of secondary aluminium. So please join us as we examine the myths, realities, and what lies ahead of us within the metals recycling sector. So Owen, how does the energy intensity of recycled aluminium and primary aluminium compare? Yeah, recycled aluminium is by far and away the most energy intensive, most energy efficient way to produce aluminium. So you're using only around one twentieth of the energy that you would to produce primary aluminium. And if somebody were to look at the aluminium industry, primary aluminium industry, and look at the differences in carbon footprint from one producer to the other, that is really all about the power source they use. Because aluminium, primary aluminium is so energy intensive, if you're producing it from renewable energy or from fossil fuels, that's the big differential in the carbon footprint. Whereas for recycling, much, much less energy intensity. And for us, when we look at the market in an unbiased way, recycled aluminium is the most sustainable choice, but you cannot replace primary aluminium because the amount of scrap coming back to the market is not sufficient to meet the demand for material today or any point in the in the near future. And that's really interesting. And I, I, I'm sure that the aluminium sector has been changed by the pandemic as well. But we're going to throw over to Neil looking at the, the lead sector. And the lead sector is by far and away, I think, the most mature in terms of the, the recycling content, well, particularly in terms of recycling content in, in the metals we look at. So, Neil, how was the lead sector shaped by the pandemic? Yeah, um, I guess just taking up on the first point there, I mean, we have as a rough estimate about 65% of global refined lead production comes from recycling. So clearly, it's a little bit different to a lot of the other base metals that you get more coming from the recycling. And yes, very established. And, you know, certainly the, the path through the pandemic has been unusual, to say the least, for, for, for the lead recycling side. Um, you know, normally that has kept going through previous downturns and economic recessions. But obviously the pandemic, a little bit different, as we all know. And um, it just stopped the, the scrap recycling chain almost dead in its tracks for, for several weeks in the, during the first wave. So that was really one of the unusual paths to track. Primary smelting unusually kept going reasonably well through the first wave, but certainly the recycling side was hit hard. But I think that's, and, and we all sort of stayed indoors, didn't go out in our cars, all parked on the driveway. So then when the restrictions did start to ease, firstly in China and then every, and in other parts of the world, you know, you just saw this huge surge in scrap as people tried to sort of start their vehicles for the first time 
people start using their vehicles more. And so there was a huge surge in the, in the scrap supply and a huge response all the way along the chain. So, you know, just as much as you saw a huge dive um, during the second quarter of, of last year, we've seen a huge surge in subsequently. So, um, yeah, it's been a very interesting interesting story. And I think also just to throw in the logistics freight situation as well, you know, certainly what we're hearing is more of the local scrap it's it's staying local. <laughs> More of it is staying local. Less is is finding its way to other regions of the world. So I think that's been really interesting. Local um, secondary smelters saying they're getting a lot more more feed through over the last year or so. So uh, yeah, that's really interesting, Neil. And and I think there's some similarities there with what we've heard in copper. And 65%. It always stands out to me when we see that and if we think about copper or aluminium it's more towards the kind of third figure so about a third of those two industries is 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 secondary in nature so lead is really very highly advanced in terms of that that metal content um so owen how does the actual mechanics of the aluminium recycled industry compare with say either the the primary industry or the alumina industry yeah, so some of those challenges Neil was talking about in terms of you know that that breakdown the collection mechanism during the pandemic, something that that hints towards is the fragmented structure of recycled gen recycled metal generation, and, and this is where the recycling industry in aluminium differs so much from the big primary aluminium smelters. You have lots of small collection points. You, you have smaller companies that are processing the material and producing the material. So instead of having a pretty concentrated supply base with large companies, very high barriers to entry in terms of capex, in the recycling industry, smaller companies, smaller barriers to entry, a lot more private ownership. So th this kind of when, when we're looking towards carbon and thinking about policy um, perspectives, this is where um, you don't have as coherent a voice coming from the industry because you have much smaller companies active in it. Whereas when you get to the primary aluminium industry, big voices, very, very um, coherent messages coming through from industry bodies. So I think it's, it's far more fragmented is, is at, at a first level. I think within China, there's a big desire to consolidate that industry and have industry champions uh, for recycled material. So Neil, um Anything you'd want to add on a, on a lead perspective? A similar similar setup? I was I was nodding a lot there, which you probably can't hear in a pod, see on a podcast. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it is. It's highly fragmented. Lots of small players, um, privately owned. Um, there are a few big guys there, yes. Um, but really, you know, I was I was thinking, how many secondary smelters are there in the world? It's it's thousands, possibly even you know five, over five thousand to ten thousand operations. So. You know, a lot of which we you know we don't actually know who they are. It's a very huge informal sector in more developing parts of the world as well. So, so regulation is a big key, but also the enforcement of that of any regulation that is coming through. So again, referring back to COP as well, I think that's going to be a key issue going forward to try and boost recycling even further. You need to have a lot, you know, better regulation, but also better enforcement. That's that's the issue in countries like India, Bangladesh, Southeast Asian countries. Is is the enforcement tends to be very poor. So uh, we know it's going on. <laughs> 
but we know the recycling continues but uh yeah sometimes in not the best way <laughs> and an- another thing on podcast there i rolled my eyes at uh five to ten thousand operations <laughs> which <laughs> unlikely to be heard either over over the wonders of radio so neil another question for you um Recently, the industry got together last month for the LME week. For the uninitiated, that's the London Metals Exchange Week, where the industry gathers within London to to talk about main events. Um, was there anything there from a recycling perspective that is changing changing the market currently? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, obviously, you know, the the big talking point was the rising energy costs and the impact on all the different metal smelters. You know, we had we had a few big announcements of cutbacks um, just before LME week, and indeed on zinc, actually in the middle of a meeting in LME week. And um, I think obviously the attention then turns to the lead side and what's going on there. And I think the the key issue is that their energy costs are a lot that their energy consumption is a lot less, relatively speaking. So it is less of an issue at the moment. And I think the other interesting aspect for me is that in the actual cost of scrap, unlike many other things, has actually stayed flat or even slightly fallen in some cases. I think that was the really thing that jumped out at me was all the smelters talking about all these issues and saying, and then you ask them how's how scrap availability. And the answer was absolutely fine. You know, we're we're actually turning deliveries away at the moment. So the actual cost of the scrap, which is typically um, expressed as a percentage of the LME price in Europe, um, has actually gone down um, in, in recent weeks. So I thought that was very interesting. I don't think it's fully offsetting, obviously, the higher costs they've got on, on everything else. But it's certainly helping the secondary smelters at the moment. And so... Picking up, um, I think maybe a theme that we touched on earlier, Owen. Putting, looking into our our kind of crystal balls, I suppose. Is there a way that the aluminium sector could become more like the lead sector? Could we? What's holding back the aluminium sector from getting to that kind of sixty-five percent of the the market coming from secondary sources? Yeah, yeah one thing is. The demand story for aluminium has been incredibly strong for a number of decades, which means the demand today is much higher than it was 15 or 20 years ago. And when you've had such a strong demand story, you have a lot of material that's still out there in use. So it hasn't reached the end of its useful life. So we're not, you know, it's it's not a policy failure that aluminium isn't matching lead. It, there is an underlying uh, growth dynamic which limits how much of a share you can get from end of life material. But still, I think that there are a few things which can really help to make, uh, to, to get that recycled rate really increasing in aluminium. And you can probably categorize them into policy and technology. So if we look on a technology perspective, uh, the more we can do around segregating scrap and, and sorting it, the, the better the use will be. So what you don't want to be doing is downgrading scrap, taking back a beverage can and that beverage can not ending up as a beverage can in its next life. You don't want it to be under the bonnet of your car in a casting. So you want you want to make sure that we're never downcycling materials. And the more we can do around sortation of scrap when it comes in, if that's x-ray um, sorting, that will help to keep material going back into its, its, into its best form in its next life. So I think that there needs to be a lot of um, um, support for companies that want to make those sorts of investments because they may not be profitable today, but we need to ensure that we um, 
avoid downcycling scrap and sortation is a key point there. Um, so that kind of that's technology, but really it's already hinting at policy supports will help to a great extent there. The other areas are around extended producer responsibility. I think that's that's an important area we need to we need to really look at. Things like consumer durables. It's a pretty natural market that, you know, let's what role can the producer play in taking that material back at the end of its life? That's gonna really help. And then things like deposit legislation for beverage cans. So we've seen good examples around the world where you just nudge the consumer in the right way. But you've got to be careful in how those policies are implemented because you don't want to um, discourage the use of one particular packaging <coughs> substrate and encourage another one if the recycling infrastructure isn't in place. But I think on the, on the policy side, the more that we can do to uh, share that burden of who's responsible for the material when it reaches the end of its useful life, to ensure that we get the highest recycling rates possible, the highest collection rates possible, and let's encourage investments in technology that when that material comes back to the market, it's collected and sorted in the best possible way. And I suppose the natural follow-up to that, Neil, is why is why are so many lead batteries recycled? What has taken us to the to the position we yeah. are now in lead? Yeah, I think I think it was it, when, certainly a point that's made to me. You know, you keep forgetting as well that it's it's the cycle life of the battery as well. So the the life of a lead battery in a vehicle does not that the vehicle lasts a lot longer than the battery. So in, so say in Europe, the average um, life of a of a light vehicle is maybe eleven twelve years. You would expect to replace the battery in that vehicle two or three times, depending exactly on weather conditions and all the other uh, you, how much you intensely use your vehicle etc etc um and so so basically the battery is almost being being removed from the vehicle and to actually replace it usually there's there's a small fee uh, a slightly additional cost to, to replacing the battery you take it into your local garage they give you the replacement battery and then that failed battery is already on its way through the collection chain so it's a very efficient um, system, I would say. And it's sort of in developed countries, you have the regulation. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, they're forcing the scrap through the system as quickly as possible, not really allowing anybody to sit on the scrap, as it were. Um, and I think in developing countries, certainly since we saw these the record highs uh, in 2007, there's, there's far, far greater awareness of the value of the lead in the battery so it's the intrinsic value that sort of provides the, the the sort of the push if you like to push the the scrap through the system so either way or a combination of the two results in exceptionally high recycling rates i mean you know i would say you know they're typically over 90 percent in most parts of the world in developed countries they're easily 95 percent plus in in probably the most efficient model that i can think of the usa it's it's pretty close to 100%. Um, you know, there's just no waste in the whole system. And in the States, it's probably the ultimate system in that there are very few um, companies controlling a lot of the scrap. So we talked earlier about fragmentation. That's the case in other parts of the world. But certainly in the US, you have just a handful of battery companies controlling the sale of the new replacement battery and the in the reverse logistics of getting the scrap back to where they want it to go, whether it's to their own smelter or to a, a third party smelter where they have an arrangement just for them to convert the scrap into lead. So it's 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 all very efficient. And, um, you know, of course, these recycling rates do have wobbles here and there, but um, I would say it's that. And also, 
you know, it's the easy logistics. A battery, a car battery is not too onerous a task, you know, to just plonk it into a back of a lorry or a truck and take it to your nearest merchant. So I think there's all sorts of issues that make it lend itself very nicely to to recycling. It's a low cost, relatively low cost to convert the scrap into lead as well. So there's there's a whole host of operations doing that. So the main problem for lead really is that there's too much competition for the scrap. So, you know, it, it, I've said scrap prices are a little bit on the low side, but relatively speaking, they are still high historically. <laughs> so we shouldn't forget that point as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're doing very nicely at the moment, though, I'd say, secondary smelters. <laughs> so, Neil, that makes me think of a kind of follow-up question here. And in an earlier um, podcast, we were covering electric vehicles. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. the technology and drivetrains of our transport fleet is going to change. Yeah, What's that going to mean for the lead industry going forward? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, it's obviously a, a big talking point now. It can become a very hot topic. Um, you know, I think the key thing to remember as well is um, these these fuller hybrids, even full battery powered electric vehicles, you know, the majority of them still have a lead battery in them. You know, yes, they have lithium batteries, and lithium batteries can provide more of the power. But a lot of these companies are still using the lead battery for auxiliary functions. So if you're not actually using it for the starter function, you're still using it for safety and security functions and a few other functions of the vehicle. You know, if that vehicle is in a crash, for example you'd much rather have a lead battery functioning <laughs> to give you your safety and security features rather than a lithium battery. So so I think that's that's the that's the important point to make. And a lot of these fuller hybrids are still using similar size lead batteries as well. So really the impact, you know, it's not going to be that that huge. I mean, yes, there are some some electric vehicle manufacturers who are saying when we're going all lithium, particularly the notable one this year has been Tesla saying that but it's sort of saying that and actually doing it could be two different things so the, i think the industry is just waiting to see exactly what happens there but as far as far as i'm concerned though so if we go all the way through this this decade certainly i don't think it's too much of an issue in terms of having any impact really on the lead scrap um, volumes that we're going to see going forward uh, probably it's it's a 2030s argument more i would say Okay, that's 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 interesting. And then, from one long-term future to another one, Owen. Uh, my final question today, and to, to to round us out, what do you see changing company behaviour? Which companies are making recycling investments in the aluminium space, and what's this actually going to mean for for the industry? Yeah, yeah. So probably on a company level, I'd, I'd think about three companies who I think are doing some really interesting work. Uh, North Hydro is investing a lot in um, utilizing more post-consumer scrap, and they're they're making big capex investments relative to their peers to be able to tap into lower grades of scrap, and that really helps with longer-term collection rates and, and utilizing that material. They're also making a lot of investments at their primary aluminium smelters, so you can start to see a bit of thinking around: can we have complementary? secondary or remelt as is often called in the aluminium industry alongside the primary so i think that those are two very nice developments which um 
make me a bit optimistic for the future. Novellus is worth singling out, um, the world's largest aluminium company today, huge recycler. And what's been notable about Novellus is that they have really focused their growth around recycling centers. They've made big investments in Brazil, Germany and Korea, and its growth is coming based off where they're tapping into recycled material and then they're delivering that their the sheet, the rolled products to customers. The, the last company I'd leave with is um, China Hongqiao. So China Hongqiao has been historically the largest primary aluminium producer in the world, a company that really um, grew rapidly in primary aluminium production in the last 15 years. They're investing through the chain. So what's really interesting about China Hongqiao is they're investing in car shredding all the way through to delivering the products. And that's with a, a joint venture with Chiho uh, Environmental in China. And Chiho is another company probably worth noting who've bought up companies around the world, whether in waste to energy or in aluminium recycling technology to kind of really up their game on the IP side on recycling. And that's starting to really pay benefits now with the joint venture they have with China Hongqiao. Okay, well, that takes us to the end of our discussions today. To close out, uh, the lessons I think I've learned is lead is far ahead in terms of the, the amount of content it has that comes from secondary sources. Regulation has helped push lead to where it is today. The aluminium industry is changing, um, both on a company level and, interestingly, from an environmental level as well. Uh, from what Owen was saying, one twentieth the amount of energy is a truly fascinating statistic. So I'm going to leave it there and thank both of the panellists that we had today, Neil Hawkes and Owen Dinsmore. If you'd like to find out any more about the services that we cover, please don't hesitate to contact any of us at CRU.